Welcome to the Kotke Ride Home for Monday, August 30th, 2021. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, electric cars were being made as far back as the late 19th century, with entire fleets of electric cabs roaming the streets of several major cities. So what happened? Why didn't they become the go-to vehicle from the beginning? Plus, the history of the very delicious and confusingly named Boston Cooler and the middle schoolers trying to clear the name of a woman accused of being a witch back in 1693. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. The electric car revolution is finally, hopefully, beginning to go mainstream, but it turns out it's taken even longer than I realized. The debate over electric versus gas cars goes back pretty much to the beginning of cars themselves. And the reason gas cars won out? Here's a hint. It was misogyny. Well, at least in part. So Slate recently ran an excerpt from Tom Standage's new book, A Brief History of Motion, From the Wheel to the Car to What Comes Next. And he dives into the development of electric cars all the way back in the 19th century. So way back in 1897, the best-selling car in the U.S., he says, was the Columbia from Pope Manufacturing Company, an electric model. Now, its lead wouldn't last long as steam vehicles became pretty popular for a hot minute there, and then by 1903, the Oldsmobile Curved Dash came out, a gas-powered automobile, and it took the lead in popularity. And even though many in Europe had already become gasoline converts, in the U.S., the debate was still ongoing through the first decade of the 1900s. And what exactly were the main points of the debate? Well, as Standage points out, cars were supposed to fix a lot of the problems that people had with horse-drawn vehicles. You know, issues like noise, traffic, accidents, and the pollution and stench caused by horse manure. Now, Standage is well aware of the irony that the gas-powered cars that won out failed on exactly all of those points. Well, except the manure. Unless you are Biff in Back to the Future, your car isn't leaving any horse manure in its wake, but it is producing way more and way worse pollution in the form of carbon monoxide and dioxide, nitrogen oxide, sulfur dioxide, and various greenhouse gases, not to mention, quoting Standage, reliance on fossil fuels such as gasoline and diesel has also had far-reaching geopolitical ramifications, as much of the world became dependent on oil from the Middle East during the 20th century, end quote. And even back in the 1800s, people knew that gas-powered cars didn't solve nearly as many problems as their electric counterparts, which were quieter, cleaner, more reliable, and easier to operate, according to Standage. And quoting from him further, But their range was limited to around 30 miles on a single charge. Recharging was slow, and they had trouble negotiating rough roads outside big cities. Steamers had a longer range than electrics and had no difficulty climbing hills or carrying large loads, but their long-term prospects were limited. They were complicated to operate, requiring special licenses in some states, needing refilling with water every 20 or 30 miles, produced clouds of steam that hampered visibility, and were slow to start because they needed to build up a head of steam first. They could at least use existing roadside troughs that supplied water to horses. Gasoline-powered vehicles based on internal combustion engines were noisy and smelly, difficult to start, and less reliable than the alternatives, at least to begin with. Albert Pope, founder of Pope Manufacturing and maker of the best-selling Columbia electric vehicle, insisted, No one will buy a carriage that has to have all that greasy machinery in it. 
But although they were complicated and temperamental, gasoline vehicles had the advantage of greater range because gasoline was widely sold at general stores, initially as a cleaning solvent and then as fuel. Each technology had pros and cons, but given the considerable disadvantages of steam power, it came down to a contest between electric and gasoline-powered cars." End quote. In Electric's corner, the aforementioned advantages, but particularly in urban environments, they were great. You weren't ever going to be going too far or too fast in a city, and they could be charged in a central depot overnight, so you need never worry about charging back up or filling up a tank. And this was especially true for service vehicles like taxi cabs, buses, delivery trucks, and fire engines, all of which existed in electric forms in parts of Europe and the U.S., there was even one taxi model, the Electrobat, that partnered with the electric battery company so that you could swap out batteries halfway through the day and not waste time charging back up. Kind of like you might a digital camera or other device with a removable, rechargeable battery these days. The success of the Electrobat, sadly, would lead to the first stage of the downfall of electric vehicles overall. A wealthy financier had seen the promise of the Electrobat and wanted to create whole fleets of them in every major city. Taxis and streetcars all run on electricity. He got the Electrobat inventors together with Pope Manufacturing, the company who had made the then best-selling electric Columbia car, and founded the Electric Vehicle Company, or EVC. And Standage notes that for a brief moment in 1899, EVC was the largest automobile manufacturer in America. But it wasn't to last. EVC hit a number of roadblocks. They weren't bringing in as much money as they should have been outside of their main market in New York, and they engaged in a couple of shady practices, or allegedly did. But once an industry journal with the amazing name The Horseless Age started attacking EVC on all these allegations, it was basically over. Their share prices plunged, they closed up shop at regional offices, and most unfortunately, all of their bad business shed a negative light on the electric vehicle market overall. But electric vehicles were about to face another blow. Already declining in popularity thanks to the scandals associated with EVC, the easier-to-operate-and-maintain electric vehicles started getting a reputation as a woman's car. Not only were they less complex and more reliable, but they also didn't go as far. And of course, women should never be venturing too far from the home alone. Men, meanwhile, were smart and capable enough to handle the upkeep of a gas-powered car and happy to trade off those relative downsides so they could have more power in their vehicles. Quoting Standage and Slate, Advertisements for the Baker Electric depicted women at the wheel of its vehicles, with one driver dropping her husband off at a golf course. Cole, another manufacturer, claimed its electric cars were the choice of American womanhood. Two manufacturers, Detroit Electric and Waverly Electric, launched models in 1912 that were said to have been completely redesigned to cater to women. As well as being electric, they were operated from the back seat, with a rear-facing front seat to allow the driver to face her passengers, but also making it difficult to see the road. For steering, they provided an old-fashioned tiller rather than a wheel, which was meant to be less strenuous, but was also less precise and more dangerous. Henry Ford bought his wife Clara a Detroit Electric rather than one of his own Model Ts. And some men may have liked that electric cars' limited range meant the independence granted to their drivers was tightly constrained. End quote. This kind of became the final nail in the coffin, because there just weren't that many women drivers back then. In 1914, Standage notes only 15% of drivers in LA and 5% in Tucson were women. It's tough to keep justifying money for innovation and production in anything that's going to such a niche consumer base. 
And that's exactly what happened. Even though Henry Ford had teamed up with Thomas Edison to try to finally crack the short-range battery issue, it wasn't a priority, and they never managed to exactly figure it out, so they eventually just quietly put it aside. As Standage explains, ultimately, gender stereotypes and business practices aside, electric vehicles ultimately suffered from the same problems they do now. Even then, cars were seen as freedom, a device that allowed you to go wherever you wanted, unless it was electric and you had to be tethered to places where you could charge it. Because even if you also have to stop for gas, it wasn't nearly as often, and theoretically, you could carry some with you if you needed it. And though as much as I genuinely enjoy auto maintenance, I gotta agree with Pedro Salome, the co-inventor of the Electrobat taxicab, who said in 1895, quote, The marvelously complicated driving gear of a gasoline vehicle, with its innumerable chains, belts, pulleys, pipes, valves, and stopcocks, is it not reasonable to suppose, with so many things to get out of order, that one or another of them will always be out of order? End quote. Ah, oh, it's so true it hurts. With gasoline cars, it is indeed always something. And to think that we could have had simple, clean, electric cars from the very beginning. We may be finally getting there, though. Earlier this month, Petaluma, California became the first city in the U.S. to ban the construction of any future gas stations or even new pumps on existing sites. And as other towns in California are expected to follow suit, it's a major feather in the cap for electric vehicles and maybe the beginning of the push needed to finally end the reign of gas-powered cars. So on Friday, I shared the incredible history of the Icy, and today I thought I'd share with you another modern marvel, one which certain listeners among you may be familiar. It's the Boston Cooler, Detroit's favorite drink. Well, maybe not favorite. I feel like Detroit's favorite drink is just any flavor of Fago. But the Boston Cooler is a drink that has been lovingly adopted and adapted by Michiganders. Now, while some local lore says that it got its name from Boston Boulevard in Detroit or the Boston Edison neighborhood in Detroit, it's just as likely that the drink's origins lie in actual Boston. According to Atlas Obscura, the drink was first invented in Massachusetts in the late 1800s. Originally a rum, lime, and soda water cocktail, it took on many forms as it spread around the region. At some point in 1889, one newspaper described the recipe for a Boston cooler as being a combination of ginger ale and sarsaparilla. Quoting Atlas Obscura, During the heyday of American soda fountains in the early 1900s, Boston cooler became a catch-all term for any chilled treat. Philadelphia soda jerks mixed theirs with local Hires root beer and ice cream, while Maine mixologists made theirs with a combination of moxie, a local bitter soda, lime, and rum. Going even further off book, one ice cream company's 1915 recipe for a Boston cooler was simply a scoop of ice cream resting in a halved melon, end quote. But once it hopped over to Michigan, it achieved its penultimate form, a scoop of ice cream floating in a glass of Verner's. Basically a root beer float, but with Detroit's own ginger ale brand instead of root beer. And a quick aside on the history of Verner's, which was created by Dr. James Verner, the first licensed pharmacist in the state of Michigan, quoting, Detroit is it. Verner was working on a stomach tincture involving ginger and some other herbs and placed them to age in oak barrels. Shortly after initiating this experiment, he was called off to the Civil War in 1862, just like that. Upon his return, he rediscovered his lost barrel, and to his delight, the results were both medicinal and delicious." End quote. 
quite an origin story for Werner's soda there. But anyways, the switch from various other sodas to Werner's specifically was probably due to the fact that many soda fountains in the Midwest in about the 1930s and 40s were owned by Werner's. So of course they'd incorporate their own soda into the beverage. As the 20th century went on and Werner's continued trying to innovate, at one point trademarking the term Boston Cooler for an attempted ice cream bar, and eventually the general public decided on the Boston Cooler's final form. Still just vanilla and Werner's, but now mixed up to a bit more like a shake consistency than a float. And this version was so good that all other definitions of the Boston Cooler slowly ceased to exist. Lots of places in Detroit, ice cream parlors and bars alike, still sell Boston coolers, and McDonald's even made free ones once on Detroit's anniversary. Now, someone who has spent most of his summers in Michigan, I gotta say, I feel robbed that I never knew about this before. I drank plenty of Verner's at my grandma's growing up, but not once did she offer it to me with a scoop of ice cream. If the transformations at craft stores, Starbucks, and the many spirit Halloweens dotting the landscape are to be believed, Halloween is right around the corner. And that means we'll soon see a proliferation of articles about witches, both historical and modern, Hocus Pocus will be played on repeat on Freeform, and countless tourists will be flooding the streets of Salem, Massachusetts. But it's important to remember the real history of the witch trials in Salem and beyond, and how they weren't really about real witchcraft, but about misogyny, about racism, about classism and faith-based prejudice, and about unchecked power being bolstered by collective, paranoid, magical thinking. A class of 8th graders from North Andover, Massachusetts get that, and that's why they are currently fighting to get one last victim from the Salem witch trials name cleared. While most of the victims who were convicted of witchcraft in the 1690s were exonerated in the 1950s and a subsequent event in 2001, one person was left out. Quoting the New York Times, The woman, Elizabeth Johnson Jr., who lived in what is now North Andover, Massachusetts, was one of 28 members of her extended family who faced allegations of witchcraft in 1692, according to historians. She was born around 1670 and may have been mentally disabled. She was sentenced to death in 1693 after she confessed to being a witch only to be granted a reprieve by the governor of Massachusetts at the time. She died in 1747 at the age of about 77. But in contrast with a vast majority of other people who were wrongfully convicted and carried the stigma associated with the witch trials long after their deaths, Johnson had no known descendants to try to clear her name. End quote. So, the 8th graders decided to take up the mantle and are working with State Senator Diana DiZoglio to get Johnson exonerated 328 years later. The student's teacher, Carrie Lapierre, has been teaching the students about the legislative process as part of their civics work, and they became inspired to take on this project after learning about this former member of their own town. Quoting Lapierre, To right a wrong, it's worth doing. End quote. Alright, well that's it from me for today. As always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media and Kotki.org. I am Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again tomorrow.